Checking, checking. Hey, we're live on YouTube. It has worked. Thank you for your patience, uh, Instagram. Uh, finally, we are rolling here. So welcome. Welcome, everybody, to Martinis with Scott, episode 176, a show that we do about winning momentum in life and in business. Cheers. I hope everybody's having a great Thursday afternoon and that you've had a wonderful week. So uh, now that we've got over our technical hurdles and we've got YouTube working, by the way, on YouTube, I wasn't late. I wasn't late for our 4 p.m. Eastern drink. I The the, uh, the YouTube live stream was not working. If everybody wants to throw into the comments anything they'd like me to talk about, I'm happy to do so. But without that, I'm just going to jump into my first topic for today, which is setting the table. Setting the table for negotiation. What does setting the table mean? In, in negotiation, doesn't matter if you're negotiating for business or negotiating with your family or negotiating for anything, but let's just keep this in a business context today. When you're setting the table and entering into, entering into negotiations, think of negotiation as three phases. First phase being, being the, the pre-negotiation, the getting everything ready, answering the questions about the who, Who's going to negotiate? What are we negotiating? Where are we negotiating? Why are we negotiating? The who, what, where's, when's, and why's, and how that fits into your overall strategy of negotiation. And that's what I'm calling setting the table, getting the framework right to give you the best chance of success in your negotiation. So that would be pre-negotiation. And then you have the actual negotiation. And then you would have the post-negotiation uh, because and we'll talk about that on some other show. It's beyond the context today, <clears throat> but you always need to to deal with the um, with the aftermath of the negotiation and making sure that things are being followed through, that there's accountability, that everybody's happy with uh, the solution that was arrived at, and that there's not a renegotiation um, out of spite, you know, a month from now or what have you. So pre-negotiation, negotiation, post-negotiation. Today we want to talk about the first one. Uh, I've talked a lot about negotiation on the Martinis with Scott channel. I want to talk about the first one today being uh, pre-negotiation or setting the table. Now, for those of you that are longtime listeners of the show, you will recall that I, I try to present to you a, uh, a, a methodology, a framework for carrying out any form of persuasion or negotiation, and that comes in the form of an acronym, which is ATMOG, A-T-M-O-G, attention, okay, trust, meaning, openness, and gap, okay, attention, trust, meaning, openness, and gap, A-T-M-O-G, so we're going to go through those uh, again today, those points, those five points, but in the context of the pre-negotiation of setting the table uh, so that you can be most successful. So let's start with attention. What does attention mean in the ATM OG negotiation framework? Well, if you're trying to persuade somebody, sell them of anything, what is the first rule? What do you need to do? You need to get their attention. Uh, you need to find some way to get them to pay attention to you uh, so that you can sell them or persuade them, whatever it is that you're pitching, if you're trying to sell a product, if you're trying to uh, pitch them on a uh, social issue, or, you know, we just watched some elections last night. So on politics, you need to have the attention of the market that you're going after. 
And I've always suggested to you that if we're focusing on the turnaround of troubled businesses and troubled organizations that need to be fixed and turned around, stakeholders needed to be persuaded, well, you probably have the attention of the stakeholders already. If you're running a small business and you haven't paid your loans or the bank thinks you're offside with your covenants, you have the attention of the bank. If you're missing payroll, you have the intention of your employees. Um, or even if your employees think that you are, you know, that the company that they work for is not stable and that there's risk associated. Um, all of the stakeholders of a troubled business, uh, the first secured creditor being the bank, second secured creditor, should there be any unsecured creditors being the suppliers and services provided to the business, the employees, uh, the shareholder, everybody's often paying attention already. So the attention part of a business turnaround and a business negotiation is often relatively easy, okay, but not always easy, but often relatively easy. Whereas if you're trying to sell a product or persuade a service, persuade somebody on a service or a position, um, often getting their attention is very, very difficult. Why are I'm looking at the Instagram live right now. Why are Instagram influencers so valuable? Because of this attention side. If you can position your product or your service with that particular influencer who has a market, who has some attention already, then you have uh, shortcutted that. And that's there's that, that methodology, that problem of getting attention. And there's some value uh, to that, <laughs> which is why you ought to pay your influencers. So... That's what attention is. But I've said in a business context, if you're a troubled company, um, that you're going to have everybody's attention. But you need to have more than just attention. OK, you need to have um, you need to have the attention and the mindset of your counterparty. And this is where we're getting into the setting the table idea. Your counterparty, the people that you're going to negotiate with, need to understand their role in the negotiation that you have set up for them. If you want to be successful and you have thought through the ATMOG methodology, um, you've thought through the setting the table, the who's going to negotiate, what are we negotiating, where are we doing it, why are we doing it, when are we doing it. If you thought through all that, the next thing is to get that information into the head of your counterparty that you are negotiating with um, so that you not only have their attention, but you have their attention on the footing that you need their, their attention to be on, uh, that you have set the table in a way that everybody understands uh, what's going on and their various roles in this negotiation, okay? And the onus is on you to do that, to set that table in advance. And so I've expressed to you, I think, on this show before, but I certainly see it in my career turning uh, troubled companies around all the time, that that the I'm often frustrated when I'm dealing with large institutions, let's say a big bank. So you've got a company, they're in financial trouble, you're dealing with the big bank, and you want to go to that banker and you want to say, you know, you want to pay some lead, which is part of building trust. You want to say, we know you're, we know we're in trouble. We know this company is trouble. Here's everything they've done wrong. Here's what they're going to do to fix it. But what you want to do is have some consensus from that bank as to what you're negotiating right? Um, you don't want to just leave it up to them to decide, well, here's how we can help you. Do you need more money from that bank? Do you need more time from that bank? Uh, do you need a restructuring agreement from that bank, right? You have to set the table 
so they know what they're negotiating. And, and I always have this frustration because the large institutions, I'm not picking on banks, it's just the bureaucratic nature of it, is they hold their cars very close to their vest, right? You can, you can picture that. They hold their cards really close to their vest. And therefore, you don't ever really get a clear, you, you, you often think you're not negotiating the same thing. They're there to listen to you. They're polite. They try to understand. They build their reports internally. But they're not really negotiating with you because the table has not been set. And it's very, very difficult to set the table uh, with a large bureaucratic uh, type organization that you're negotiating with. Whereas if you're dealing with an individual, um, you if you're dealing with an individual with one party, then often it's quite easy to set the table. Um, but what they may be negotiating may be entirely different from what you're negotiating. And I'm going to come to that in a minute. I'll give you an example of this, this bank scenario. Um, I can think off the top of my head, I think we've talked about it on this show before, where I was negotiating with a bank, a financial institution that was in a second secured position on a company, meaning that the, 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 the main bank had lent a bunch of money and this company was insolvent and the main bank wasn't going to get paid in full. Right. And we've talked about priority of creditors on this channel before. You need to understand that when you're trying to turn around a business. And so the main bank wasn't going to get out 100 cents on the dollar. And therefore, what is the second position worth? Well, the answer, the answer is zero or at least not very much. Maybe there's a nuisance value to to getting that that creditor paid. And this this second secure creditor was owed a lot of money in the context of this transaction. And so I spent the better part of a year part of a year trying to get this institution on the same page in terms of what we're negotiating, why we're negotiating, how we're going to go about that, setting up this framework for negotiation. And it was just it was just a failed ever effort because I could never get them to commit to a plan to negotiate. Never meant a solution to the restructuring, but even a methodology to go about the negotiation. I've, I've talked about this on the show many times that when you're negotiating a restructuring, when you're trying to restructure a debt owed uh, as a business owner, what are you really restructuring? Like, what are, what are the parameters of that? And, and one answer, there's only a couple. There's time. Like, how much time do I have to pay this back? There's the amount of money. Um, how much of this am I going to pay back? And then what happens in between? Right? So if, if your business owes somebody $10 million, just making them a number, you can't pay it back. Uh, the value of that $10 million in liquidation is, I don't know, let's say zero, which was sort of the scenario in this case. What are you negotiating for? So like, am I paying you back? So first of all, is the amount of money. Am I paying you back 10 or are you accepting zero or is it going to be somewhere in between? And if it's not an immediate solution, the second thing you're negotiating is time. Okay, I'm going to pay you, I'm going to pay you the full $10 million, but I'm going to do it over... X number of years and conditional on the business recovering and having a bunch of positive earnings and then you participate in those or we don't have any time we just we just finish this off today and you get nothing right there's another side to that negotiation and if there's time if it's whatever say five years what happens in between just means what are the controls and the reporting in place so that creditor knows that things are going the way that they want them to go. And that's what you're negotiating. That's what you're negotiating on. There is nothing else in a restructuring. How much money are they going to get? We'll call it cents on the dollar. How much time to pay that? 
and what are the controls and the assurances that happen in between uh, today and when that plan is completed. And so the problem is if you can't, if you can't even get the organization, if you can't set the table and you can't get the counterparty, if you can't get your counterparty, which was my problem, hey, Lush Kootenai, how you doing? We're talking about uh, negotiation today and setting the table. If you can't get your counterparty to even agree to what you're negotiating about because they're holding their cards so close to the rest, then then you're going to fail. And as I said, I worked with this bank for a year and we did fail. And and had they have participated, I believe, I'm sure they don't believe it, but I believe had they participated more fully in just scoping out the framework, this is what we're trying to accomplish, we would have had a we would have had a more suitable solution. Now I'm working on that. That was a while ago. I'm working on uh, something more recently where I'm not dealing with as a counterparty. The person I will be negotiating or am negotiating with is not in fact a large organization, but basically an individual. Okay, so the individual does not have the same bureaucracy that you have when you're dealing with a bank, but it doesn't change the fact that you need to, as I said, set the table. And again, set the table, like establish upfront before you even start to negotiate the what are we negotiating, why are we negotiating, when are we negotiating, and who are we negotiating with and where, right? All those questions. So in this scenario, you've got one business owner and a second business owner, and they're in dispute, and one business owner is accusing the other business owner of being uh, a bad person. So let's call it business owner A is accusing business owner B of being a bad person, of not having uh, acted above board. And that may or may not be true. But what business owner A has done in response to this feeling aggrieved is they did a bunch of things that, that they shouldn't have done that were certainly over the line, in some cases, perhaps technically uh, not legal, right? Um, but I don't know that they even know that. I don't even know that they know that. And so if you want to sit down and mediate, if you want to bring these parties together, if you want to have a solution, do you want to walk into a scenario where you've got where you've got one party A uh, thinking that one thinking that they're great people, a great guy, and that one party B is a bad guy? That's a pretty significant imbalance to finding a solution that everybody's going to be able to sign off on, um, particularly when the facts of the matter don't support that. So setting the table, instead of walking into a negotiation, if you're party B and you walk into a negotiation where party A thinks you're you're a terrible person uh, and they're wrong, or even if they're right, but they're also doing things that they shouldn't be doing, you need to push back on that, right? You need to push back on that. And that is setting the table. You need to point out, okay, well, here's where you're, don't defend yourself, but push back on their flaws. You've got flaws. Well, they're pushing back on their flaws. Here's the things that you have done. And really what you're trying to communicate is that they have risk on their side because if you walk into the negotiation without having set the table this way, they're going to think to themselves, well, okay, I've established that I'm a good guy and that they're a bad guy. And now we're going to talk about how much I'm going to get to make up for them being a bad guy. If you can turn that table, if you can, if you can point out that they also have risk and they're not lily white on this thing. And now we can have a discussion about how we work together to get the hell out of this problem. That's a much better negotiation. It's a much better framing for a negotiation and you do it before you negotiate, you set the table. So that's, that's setting the table in the context of attention and the ATMOG persuasion negotiation uh, framework. 
that I talked about and created. What's the T in the A-T-M-O-G? It's trust. Okay, so you've got the attention piece. Now you're talking about a trust. You know, we all know that you can't negotiate anything without trust. Cheers again, by the way. You can't negotiate anything without trust. Trust um, it. Um, we've talked about this before. I was going to give you another example, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to cut forward on that. And I've talked to you before on this channel about the concept of the, you know, having an account at the trust bank is one way that I like to talk to people about it. So you just picture you've got like a bank account, but it's a trust account. Okay, and you're dealing with your counterparty. Well, what are the possible scenarios of deposits in your trust account? Well, you could have a positive balance, meaning that person trusts you, your counterparty trusts you, you're a trustworthy person. Um, and that could be a lot of trust or a little bit of trust, but it could be a positive trustworthy. I sit down to negotiate with you and I generally have a general feeling of trust with you. Okay, so there's a positive. I could have uh, nothing in my account at the trust bank which means we sat down to negotiate with each other. And I don't even know who the hell you are. I don't know if I'm going to trust you or not trust you. I just don't know. I don't have any opinion one way or the other. Um, I'm not going to enter into it with a negative view, but I'm certainly not just going to trust you willy nilly without uh, some evidence that I could do that. And a third option is that you have an overdraft in your account at the trust bank, which means that you've proven in the perception of your counterparty to be an untrustworthy uh, person, which changes entirely uh, the negotiation. So when you enter in a negotiation, the point of the T in the ATMOG is to, you need to understand where you are on the trust. And how does that relate to setting the table? Well, one of the settings of the table I've said is, you know, you think about what your negotiation, who is doing the negotiation. If you have somebody with a trust deficit on your team, or if you are the one negotiating at principal on this and you have a trust deficit on your team, get out of the way. Get out of the way. Bring in somebody. Bring in somebody who is more uh, trustworthy who, or who is at least neutral on this who hasn't proven themselves to be untrustworthy and you know you need to you need to set the table in that light but you also need to track your trust account over time you can add to your trust account by for example uh, by having a good reputation uh, by behaving with honesty at all times uh, performing right so competence is part of that uh, you know the person isn't lying to me but they're just incompetent every time they say they're going to do something it doesn't get done that sort of adds to that trust account um, and just the perception, of course, you can of your counterparty, and you can you can delete, you can take withdrawals from this account at the trust bank by doing the opposite, by lying, by being incompetent. And when I say lying, by the way, that could be a direct lie or a lie of omission. You always got to watch out for those in business. Um, and and again, whether it's true or not, uh, the, it's the perception of the other party that matters. So, does the other party trust you? Do you trust the other party? Well, in setting the table, this show is about setting the table in the context of this ATMOG framework. Um, you need to you need to think about that trust and what you do can do before you even start negotiating. What can you do to increase the trust? You can show some competency. You can switch up the players. You can uh, pace and lead. What is pace and lead again? This is a persuasion technique where you don't argue with the other people and there's perceptions, you say, yes, you're right about that. And here, if they are right about it, and here's even 
more evidence that you're right about it, but now here's what we're going to do about it, right? And so that's trying not to trying not to argue up front, but to what's called pace, and then you lead the way out of that trouble. Point being, you need to think about the trust that you have or the lack of trust that you have, whether you're in a positive position or a deficit position, and then you need to set the table, change your negotiation strategy accordingly. The third point on the ATMOG is uh, meaning, and this is where you need to understand the meaning of this negotiation to the other party. Okay, what does this mean to the other party? If you get what you want, what does that mean to the other party? Is it just black and white? Is it just numbers? Is it profit and loss? Um, or is there more of an emotional or uh, indirect consequence to this? So, for example, if you're dealing with a, a large institution, um, more likely than just the black and white of this, there's the internal politics in your counterparty, in the large organization. Who's put themselves on the line? What have they said? The more that you can understand about that, the more that you can understand the meaning and the risk to the people, because you're negotiating with people, you're not negotiating with an institution, <coughs> uh, even though those people represent the institution, what is the risk to them? What is the risk to them internally, often, not always, but often more important than just the black and the white of the transaction. And if you're dealing with an individual, <clears throat> it's emotional way more than you think, okay? And so how are you going to deal with that? You need to understand the meaning if you have your way, if you get what you want out of a negotiation. What does that mean to the other side? And this is a good time. You know, we talked in the last point about trust, so attention, trust, meaning, well, trust, I've taught you, is if we talked about anything on the show, is, is trumped by what? It's trumped by benevolence. Competence, trust, benevolence, fear. Okay, the meaning is a good point when you're setting the table to try to set it in such a way that you, as the negotiator, as you become partners with your counterparty, we're trying to find something that is benevolent for you, that is a good thing for you because I care about you because I care about you, okay? And if we come back to that attention and setting the table in such a way that you've created this sense of partnership, we need to get out of this together, um, then you're you're going to do a lot better in your negotiation. So this is a good opportunity for you to understand the meaning to the of this to the people that you're negotiating with and also to consider uh, benevolence uh, as something just beyond trust, that if you want to sell somebody on something, it's a very, very uh, important technique. All right. Um, openness. So ATMOG, openness. What does this mean? So this means, you know, what are the parties open to? Both sides, okay? And what you need to do is you need to, you need to sit down quietly before you've entered into the negotiation and say, okay, what are the range of possibilities? So I said earlier on this uh, on this episode in a debt restructuring, what are the range of possibilities? I pay you zero or 10 cents on the dollar or whatever the floor is. I can do that and I can do it today. There's one extreme. The other extreme is I pay you all the money I owe you, the $10 million that I owe you. I can pay you that over five years. Okay, so those are your range of possibilities. And what's in the middle is some hybrid 
of those. I can pay you, you know, a little bit more right now, or I can pay you the 10 cents on the dollar right now. And then I could also pay you some upside in three years, you know, whatever, whatever that hybrid is. And so it's really useful in a debt negotiation, for example, but every negotiation, but we're using debt negotiation as an example. What you don't want to do is walk to the negotiating table and go, eh, eh, I don't know. What do you think? This is a problem. What do you think? I don't really know the answer. Do you know the answer? I don't know. That's not the negotiation you want to have. You want to know what you're negotiating for and you want to set the table. Well, you want to know what you're negotiating for and you want to know what the range of possibilities are of your counterparty as a much, as much as you can. And then, and then you want to set the table in a direction that leads to what you think your outcome uh, ought to be. So for example, I might say to an, uh, a bank in that situation with my $10 million of debt, uh, that's worth zero today, hypothetical example, I might say in my setting of the table phase, here's my liquidation analysis, here's the cash flows, as you can see, you're not getting any money unless we collectively do something about that. You're going to get zero. This company is going to go bankrupt and you're all going to get nothing, right? That's 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 the problem that we face together. But the benevolence of this is I don't want you to get money. I want nothing. I want you to get your whole $10 million. We're not trying to be bad guys. We're not trying to wipe you out in this hypothetical example. What we're trying to do is to work with you to work with you to avoid that situation of the zero. And let's head towards the situation of over time, you get your $10 million, right? And that is understanding what the possibilities are on my side or on the, the borrower side in this particular example, works for any negotiation, but I'm just using a debt example and understanding the possibilities um, on the lender side, right? And then, so that's understanding it. That's the openness and the setting the table in, you, in the direction you want, which really leads us into the last point, which is the gap, as we call it, um, which is the in the framework for negotiation is the common ground, the, the sliver of clear sky in between all of these problems. That's what you want to be aiming for negotiation. And you want to aim for that uh, by having set the table in advance, understanding the openness and the meaning of it. And, and then, you know, it becomes pretty obvious normally uh, what people what what the ultimate solution is for both parties in many many instances not in all instances but it, it can become uh, very obvious so that's the atmog work attention trust meaning uh, openness and gap in each step you can think about setting the table which means uh, coming up with uh, who's going to negotiate for you and who are you negotiating against when what is the timing of that what are you negotiating exactly and why are you doing that? And where are you doing that? Think about all those things before you even start to negotiate in any situation at all. And uh, think about it in the context of the ATMOG framework and you're going to end up uh, much better off setting the table. Thanks for listening to that segment. So let's move on now. Cheers, by the way. I want to talk to you about corporate roll-ups. Are you in business? Have you heard this term, roll-ups? Um, you know, in, in my business, I just hear it all the time. And I thought I would explain to you what it is. And we'll have just a quick chat about that. So <clears throat> let's say you like ice cream stores. You're a finance person. You're a banking person. You're an entrepreneur. And you really love ice cream. 
Okay, you with me so far? I think I'm all of those things. And you decide there's a real opportunity in the ice cream market in general to buy a bunch of little ice cream stores and put them together under one umbrella. Okay, to go through the industry and roll up, as, as it's called, ice cream stores onto your platform. So how would you go about that? Well, what you would do is you would try to find your first what they call the platform, your first acquisition of an ice cream store. And let's say you're targeting an ice cream store that does a million dollars in revenue. By the way, I have no idea if ice cream stores do a million dollars in revenue. I haven't got a clue. Let's just use that as a hypothetical example. And you say to yourself, I can buy that million dollar revenue ice cream store for let's make our lives easy, a million dollars. Okay, don't ever buy a business based on a multiple of revenue. It's the stupidest thing you can do. But let's just say, Let's just say you're doing that. So, it, or you went through the proper math and it worked out to be a million dollars. That would be a smarter thing to say. And so, you bought this first store for a million dollars, or you want to buy this first store for a million dollars. And your idea is if I could buy 10 ice cream stores, all of them doing a million dollars, and I put them uh, together, now I would have one business that does 10 million in revenue with 10 locations. Now, what are the advantages of that? Is a $10 million business better than 10 $1 million businesses? Well, um, many of the cases, yeah, it could be, or at least that's what you think, which is why you're doing an industry roll-up. So what do you do? If you had 10 stores and 10 million of revenues, now you could change the names and brand them all under the same name. So you get more consumer awareness as people go to the little towns in the region where they like the ice cream stores. They can say, oh, I recognize that guy's uh, that brand of ice cream store as opposed to the local mom and pop um, <clears throat> ice cream store name. So you can you can brand it because you're doing 10 million in revenue instead of 1 million in revenue. You could maybe spend a little bit more money on the marketing and promotion of that brand, which would benefit all 10 stores, which is something they didn't have the benefit of when they didn't have enough money because they were only doing a million dollars of revenue to you know, do that marketing themselves. You could afford to have at 10 million in revenue more consolidated and and professional management. Let's talk about a controller, for example. You know, if you're a mom and top store, mom and pop store doing a million dollars in revenue, you're probably doing your own bookkeeping. Maybe at your end, you outsource your shoebox of uh, receipts to the local accountant and they do the financial statements and the tax return for you. Well, if you're a $10 million business, that's not the way you roll. What you do, if I forgive the pun with roll up, what you do is you have a proper accountant on staff controller and you can afford to do that because you're now a $10 million business and every one of those little uh, locations participates in paying for that salary. Uh, you have more influence as a larger company in your supply negotiation, right? So you're buying your whatever your sugar commodity for ice cream um, or just the ice cream if you're not making it yourself from your supplier, well, now you're a larger buyer, which theoretically ought to give you more negotiation. You can move staff around. You got staff and this people, you know, lots of good quality people and here you're short on people. You can move them around. If you have more locations and you're a bigger company, you have an opportunity to cut redundant costs. I said that you could hire a controller, but you could also get rid of 10 bookkeepers, theoretically, 10 independent accounting firms, theoretically, and you could start to cut costs that are redundant in the overheads of each individual $1 million business 
uh, when you become a larger business. And then the other big play when it comes to making money in roll-ups is the valuation arbitrage that, you know, it, it costs less as a valuation metric to buy a million dollar business than it does to, to buy a $10 million business or a $100 million business. The multiples change as you go along. If you think about private equity, for example, basically, what do they do for a living? They, they buy companies and they try to pay the markets change. So don't hold me to the valuation multiples, but they try to buy, you know, an owner managed private business for, you know, four times EBITDA uh, or some number around that frame. And then they they get they put on some cheap leverage so they get cheap bank debt because they're a bigger better uh, financial company than the than the private business they bought is so they get some cheap bank debt and then they try to make the business a little more efficient and then they add some other businesses onto that platform so they make it bigger 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 by buying those other businesses and then they try to sell it for eight instead of the four that they bought it at right and so those are all the ways that you make this profit in a roll-up and so you buy your first one you want to be in the ice cream business you think it's terribly fragmented fragmented um, and that you can buy a bunch of little local ice cream stores and you can roll up this industry and you could do it so well that when you get big enough you can start getting some you know some base some wall street money some base stream money some private equity money to help you with this roll-up plan and so you go to buy your first one and what do you do i mean you don't have any money or you have very little money so what do you do? Well, you pay the vendor. So you've talked to a mom and pop ice cream person for your very first store and you want to pay them a million dollars. You want to buy them for a million dollars. Well, do you want to give them a million dollars cash? You do not. Why don't you want to do that? Because you still need them to work in the store. You're not going to go work in the store. You've got other stuff to do and you're off to try and buy other companies. You're doing your roll up. So you want them to be motivated uh, you want them to be working for something, and what you don't want them to do is be sitting home with a million dollars in their pocket, not caring about working for you anymore. So you give them either no money up front, or you give them a little bit of money, like $200,000, and then you give them some sort of paper, some sort of note or shares in the roll-up company, in the parent company, in your company, for the $800,000. So let's say you're buying them for a million. Well, you say, here's the deal. I can give you $200,000 so you can, you know, have a little freedom at home and, you know, have a better life. Um, you're going to get your same salary because you're going to run this business. You're going to be in a partner with me and you're going to get $800,000 of shares in the parent company. And I'm going to do all this roll up stuff. And then that value of those $800,000 is going to go up a bunch. So really, really the purchase price isn't a million dollars, but by the time you cash out in whole, it's a million and a half dollars or $2 million, right? Because you've participated in the early days of this roll up and that's the pitch because you need, you need the person to work, right? And you need them to be motivated. And also you don't have all the money anyways. You don't have a million dollars. You can't just go to a bank and say, eh, I'm going to roll up stuff. I want you to write for the whole, I want you to write the check for the whole thing. Well, that's not going to happen. So this is built in financing. That's why you do that. Okay. Um, and so, in every fragmented industry I can possibly think of, which is a cyclical thing, you see these roll-up strategies. I see these roll-up strategies. So they're brought to me all the time. Uh, they're brought to me all the time. And that's basically the business plan. So if you're in business and you've heard about a roll-up, um, you're looking at industries, you're looking at the cannabis industry five years ago, that's what you were thinking, right? You're looking at the cannabis industry today, that's what you're thinking because everybody's troubled now. And so 
uh, every industry. I just picked on that one because we happen to be involved in the hemp side of that. And so that's what a roll-up is. And it sounds like a great plan, right? No. No, it's a terrible plan. It's a terrible plan. And I'm not saying it can't work. I'm not saying that if you're a sophisticated private equity fund and you have the balance sheet and the money and the sophistication on your board of directors to deal with the inevitable problems, could be good. Not every private equity firm does this very well, but some of them do. Some of them do it very well and they make good value. But if you're just a person, if you're just an entrepreneur and you think and you think that you want to enter into this roll-up strategy, for I've seen hundreds of these over the years, and maybe one out of 10 has any measure of success. It's really no different than just starting your own business in terms of percentage success rate. Well, why is that? The reason is because what you want to do is you're working on the financial structure of this. You want to pay a little bit of money to the vendor. You want to bring them in. You want to convince them to work for you. You want to convince them on the upside. Um, but what they're thinking is something entirely different. They're thinking this is a free ride. They get some money up front. They still own some of their business. They get a bunch more money in the future. Everything's great. No stress. Except to add value to this, you need to change culture. You need to fire their bookkeeper. You need to change their supplier. You need to change the name of their company. Well, the mom and pop who sold it to you are still working there. You need to do all those things that we talked about that are the benefits of a roll-up. And the person that sold it to you doesn't want to change. They don't want to change, right? And Because they think they have their own confirmation bias. They think that everything they've been doing is right. And to hell with you. What do you know? You're not even from the ice cream business. You're not even, you, you didn't start the store. I started the store. You don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not doing what you said. And then they tell your employees, they tell their employees, who are now your employees, to not even listen to you. Ah, ignore that guy. He's not that he's talking about. You see that? You think that's extreme? You see this all the time with roll-ups. If you're going to work it, walk into this business, if you want to be an entrepreneur by buying businesses and rolling up fragmented industries, just know, just know that I, I, I have no hard stats on this, but anecdotally, the statistics of that are terrible. It's not going to be, it's probably as bad as just starting the business yourself and competing with the mom and top. It is a way to get into it, but you don't ignore culture. And don't ignore the personalities that you're going to run into uh, and the problems that you're going to have launching that business. All right. That was, uh, well, where are we here? 38 minutes in. And that was talking about roll-ups. I think we're just going to cut this off today. I have another whole other segment for you. It's going to take too long. I do want to say to you, uh, unless anybody has anything else they want me to talk about, you can throw comments there on Instagram or on YouTube. Just as I'm wrapping up here, feel free if you want me to cover a topic for you. Um, this is, um, I'm excited to announce that this is one of the few remaining episodes ever of Martinez with Scott. What, what, what are you saying? Scott, what are you talking about? Well, we're not quitting. We're going to continue on doing the same thing, but shortly probably before year end or maybe early in the new year. We will be rebranding as part of a relaunch of, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of my, my brand. And this podcast will be reformatted a little bit. It'll still be a weekly 
exercise, but it'll be reformatted a little bit. It will be rebranded. It will be new and exciting. Uh, we've been, I don't remember, but two and a half, three years on the Martinis with Scott side of this. And changes are coming. I'm not going to disclose the new brand to you yet, uh, but they're coming. And as you know, this is a weekly show. And here we are the first week of November and we don't do it over Christmas. And so really, what does that mean? It means there's three or four episodes left of the Martinis with Scott. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I know it's a little bit shorter than normal, but that's okay. Uh, next week, uh, I'm going to do the content that I've missed today, which is an update on the various turnarounds that I've I've shared my journey with you uh, on Akip Innovations, on Devani, on uh, Roofer's World. It's been an interesting summer and an interesting fall, but um, we've been getting through it. And with that, I will sign off. Anybody have anything they want to say? Thank you so much on Instagram for joining me. I will cut off on YouTube first.